This is CliffCentral.com. Our guest is Penny Viscountess Cobham. She's also a commander of the British Empire and an entrepreneur and someone who I'm very happy to welcome to the show today. So first of all, welcome. I believe you've been locked down in Cape Town, which is not the worst place in the world to be locked down. But how is it going for you? It's an extraordinary view of the Atlantic lapping over the beach. However, we can't go on the beach, so we enjoy it from our balcony. But the sun shines, and it's a treat to be with our hosts who are South African. That's terrific. It's, it's almost like you're living vicariously through the people who, who would ordinarily be on the beach, but you can't even do that. Um... Right. There's the odd brave soul who used to go for a swim. But all of that has stopped now. Yeah. Well, there are so many things I wanted to talk to you about. When I was going through um, your extraordinary CV, it, it's quite incredible. You've been on the boards of the English Tourist Board, the Victorian Albert Museum. Um, you're a CBE. You did the, the, the 2014 birthday honors for services to tourism. Um, uh, you, you've, you've obviously worked in, in a number of other businesses too, which we'll get into in, in, in just a second. But this is, uh, this is some extraordinary life. I spoke to David Mellor the other day, who's your partner, and the two of you are, are locked down in Cape Town together at the moment. And he had some very interesting things to say about the lockdown. He obviously has some opinions about China too, which I actually share with him. Are you, are you particularly opinionated on this or are you just going along with the ride? I think that wearing my hat as the former chairman of the English Tourist Board, now called Visit England, I have some very strong views that are quite mixed looking forward because in the papers today, in the British papers today, are that the airlines are thinking of cutting capacity down to 20% so they can spread people around a plane. Now, the outcome of that is pretty obvious. The costs will go up mm. by a fifth, mm. five times rather. So what does the future look like? Tourism is very aspirational, so it will always be in all of us. But how can we possibly look forward with any certainty to tourism and travel around the world, which includes us coming back to South Africa, right. with any certainty? Well, it's, it's obviously a big fear because, first of all, there's not much commercial viability in you being able to fit a fifth of the people into a plane um, and, and share that cost between those people. But there's also the damage it'll do to tourism generally. I mean, Britain's easily one of the, the most visited countries in the world from, from places all over the rest of the globe. And it's a, it's a numbers game. If, if you don't have the numbers, you know, ticket prices are everywhere will go up or places will just shut down. And we know in South Africa that the, the tourism business has come under extraordinary pressure in the last number of years anyway. And to now have this added complication added to things is, is just, it's almost too much to bear for, for many of the smaller businesses in tourism. I think that they are going to find it around the world extraordinarily difficult to sustain themselves both as employers, employees, and their businesses to a point in time when it gets anything near back to normal. I was talking yesterday with my chief ex- former chief executive at Visit England, who lives in Derbyshire in England, in the Peak District. All over the place are in this national park signs saying, tourists go home. And 
a vehicle or two that's been parked where the locals think that day visitors have been dropped off and have gone for walks, have had their windows bashed in. So there is a real fear of what visitors might bring with them. Well, there's that, but but there's also the fear that they might never come back, which for, for some, part, some parts of the countryside, and, and I know you were also in, Erit- in English Heritage, the Countryside Commission, Historic Royal Palaces, a lot of these places rely on that international tourist trade to survive and to maintain themselves and to keep up some of these old buildings. Um and some of these magnificent homes which have been around for hundreds of years and now won't be visited by the the throngs of people that they were before. Obviously, for conservationists, that's a dream, but the conservationists themselves won't be paid if no one is visiting these buildings. And if there is no income, then conservation will not be carried out. Mm. I've just finished 35 years on the board of the Historic Houses Association, to which most owners of large private uh, historic houses, taking homes, belong. And, of course, the lockdown has come at exactly the moment when the season begins, somewhere around Easter. And you never, ever make up that income again. And it is perfectly likely that the whole year will be written off. So when I open my old grade one Palladian Georgian house in the Midlands all those years ago in the 70s. Actually, people just did day visits. Now there are weddings, corporate events, conferences, and so on and so forth, all of which have stopped. And Penny, it's not too much to say that these are the jewels of of English tourism. These are the places that people have dreamt about going to visit all of their lives, that they plan itineraries for. As you say, weddings and conferences and all kinds of other things happen there. And the the owners and the occupants of these houses as they are now have been under pressure for the last hundred years since inter- inheritance yes. taxes came in and, and, and outrageous yes. bills brought in mostly by Labour governments in order to force these people into poverty and to, to remove the houses from their ownership. Uh, so the ones who were clever enough to have found a way to make these places pay for themselves and to be able to, to save some money for the extraordinary costs of maintaining lead roofs and, and other quite archaic ways of, of, of building houses, these people are now going to be out of pocket and possibly even lose their houses um, in, in, a, in a, a slew of, of, of these losses that might only be comparable to the ones that happened after the war. This is absolutely true. There was a seminal exhibition at the Victoria and Albert Museum in the 70s, and that listed the numerous important houses that had either just been given to institutional use and not conserved since the Second World War or had burnt down or been abandoned in some shape or form. And this was a turning point, and governments ever since have realised that something had to be done to uh, encourage private owners to continue to maintain these houses. Families living in a house actually, take it from me, have to work incredibly hard. This is not a stroll in the park. So actually they, though, 
are the ones that really, if they can find the financial means, are the ones which will do the very best job in restoring and sustaining these houses for people to visit and use. And you are quite right that some live right on the financial edge. Mm. And this inevitably would be a massive threat to really important houses, which people the world over, as you rightly say, love visiting. We live on the River Thames, right in the centre of London, and the Tower of London is our nearest neighbour. And as you say, I used to sit on the board of historic royal palaces, which the Tower of London was our real cash cow and our real, real draw. 80% of visitors come from overseas. Mm. So this is a massive threat. And of course, these aren't just buildings that are fun to visit. They're also places of great historical importance. And, and some of them have things that we are still learning um, embedded in their bricks and their paintings and their drawings and their floors and their walls and their frescoes and so on. And much will be lost if if we abandon these places and if they can't sustain themselves. But I think you and I are going on about something that we're both much more interested in than most people. You've done lots of other things too, and it's worth mentioning. For 14 years, you chaired Britain's largest radio station outside of London. Now, I've, I've been in radio for 20 years, so this is something close to my heart, and it's called Heart in the Midlands. And I sat on the board of Heart in London, where my cha- chairman was the legendary George Martin, who, of course, worked intimately with the Beatles. He was one of the world's great charmers. There was only one downside, Gareth. In his day, nobody wore ear protection. He was as deaf as a post. (laughs) So if you wanted to speak at a board meeting, you had to furiously wave at him to get to his eye. It's so ironic that someone who's so intimately involved with music and radio at that stage had to be shouted at to be heard. (laughs) Uh, It was great fun. It was great fun. And we really were breaking ice at that early stage. I had worked for David when he was Secretary of State for Culture as a, a special advisor on tourism and heritage. And when I left my job... I was approached by Chrysalis, who were recording company, record company, Mm -hmm. and they were bidding for the first regional radio stations. And they asked if I would chair the bid for the one in the Midlands. And uh, many months later, when we won the franchise, somebody rang me up and said, Penny, I think you should sit down because you're now the chairman of a radio station. And by the way, we need to find a venue for some studios. I mean, we literally had not even determined where the studios were going to be. God, how wonderful. You've also been, um, you talk about about the changes that have been wrought in culture and society around you, but you were also the British Casino Association chair for a while. Now, that must have been interesting because the the Gambling Act of 2005 was passed, and gambling is always such a controversial subject. People love love gambling and then there are those activists who say well it shouldn't be allowed and people should be protected from themselves yes. uh, so that they don't go and blow their hard-earned savings on on 
you know, the machines in the casino or the roulette table or whatever it might be. But for some people, it really is just a pastime and does no damage or, or harm. What are your what are your feelings on gambling, having been so intimately involved in it? And then, can you tell us some of the things that happened during your tenure there? I was approached by a headhunter, and to begin with, he wouldn't tell me what the job was. So he's still a good friend. I said, Neil, yeah, I'm not going to have this conversation till you till you can tell me exactly what you're <laughs> talking about. When he told me, I said, you've got to be joking. I, Gareth, had only ever been on the pretty side of the fence in culture and heritage, etc. And David said to me, you know what? You should just see whether you could hack it. Because I knew it was going to be very tough. My role in life was not to promote gambling at all. It was to take the private sector through the passage of this new bill So it was announced eight days after I started the job. My life was spent in the House of Commons and the House of Lords and in various departments, trying most of the time, and with journalists, to correct factual inaccuracies, which I can only tell you was an almost full-time job. Right. And whenever I did an interview, I was always on the back foot because, quite rightly, people have very strong views about gambling. And during my tenure, the responsibility within government and Whitehall with the civil servants was moved from the Home Office, where it was seen as a purely regulatory role for government, i.e. to control gambling. The responsibility was moved to the Culture Department, so it was seen as part of the entertainment offering though with strict controls. So when I started, you couldn't even have a piper in a club on New Year's Eve. So the controls were draconian and out of date. On the other hand, over the nine years that I did the job, we needed to get the right balance with government Mm. between regulatory control, but then being part of the entertainment world with with locks and, and balances on them. Well, of course, like so many other things in, in the world of regulation, if you, if you over-regulate it, then it just goes underground, and then it ends up becoming yes. quite a damaging business. I mean, we're dealing with something in South Africa at the moment during this lockdown where they've stopped people from buying cigarettes and, and liquor. And all that that's done is it's pushed the trade into the black market. And now people are engaging in probably quite dangerous activity with probably quite unsavory people because they're so desperate to obtain these things. And the same happens with gambling, right? Yes. So you need to get that balance right. As the only person um, involved who did not come from a casino background or a gambling background, I ended up being the first chairman of the charity that helped those with problems. In the main, the people with problems um, suffered from what's known as comorbidity, i.e. they were obsessives about whatever hit them. So it could be drink, drug, then it could go into gambling. And the proportion of people is very small, but it's tragic for those who do have problems. But I think that the biggest challenge is online gambling. 
which is extraordinarily difficult for any one country to address for blindingly obvious reasons. Now, can you tell me what the 5% Club is? Yes. The 5% Club was started in um, 2013 by the now chief executive of a FTSE 100 construction company called Balfour Beatty. And Leo Quinn decided that really more should be done to encourage, again, apprenticeships and to encourage employers to offer more apprenticeships, to encourage young people and not so young people to actually look at this course of action through which you can even get a degree now. So it costs nothing, whereas getting a degree in Britain is very expensive. Mm. But if you do it through a degree apprenticeship, then it costs you nothing and you are pretty likely to have a job at the end of it. So we have grown hugely. We have a lot of the very large companies, particularly in construction and defence, in membership. So we have 450 members. Many are very large, but a lot are also SMEs and, and micro-businesses. So we hold members' events all around the country, really helping people from all sectors to share the opportunities and challenges, which encourages them to do more. It sounds to me like a very good program that could be replicated in South Africa because we, we have a similar problem. Uh, there's also this idea that degrees are the only way to, to develop skills and to find yourself a place in the economy. And in these circumstances, particularly now after this, this coronavirus pandemic, I think a lot of people are going to be forced to find places in the economy where they can be valuable and do useful things. And they might not be things that you need a degree for, but you probably need some job experience. And an apprenticeship would be the right way to do that. I think that what doing an apprenticeship offers is really practical advice, as well as academic training. So we now have an apprenticeship levy for everybody, every company or employer whose payroll is over three million pounds sterling. And you pay into a pot, which is run, controlled by the government, but you can draw it back out to spend at rather archaic word, word uh, hypothecated. So you have to spend it on training. So you have to spend it on training apprentices. Like anything, I'm sure also in this country, Gareth, the devil is in the detail. Mm. And there's always moaning and groaning. I know if only we'd planned more carefully, it could be working better. But the, the theory and a lot of the practice is very good. Basically, it's driven up the number of young, and I say not so young, uh, people doing apprentices. Highways England, for example, who are responsible for the building of all of our major roads, mm -hmm. they have a program whereby they actively go around their workforce and they go to you, Gareth, and they say, you know what, have you thought of retraining for a different job within Highways England? Because there's every likelihood your job actually is not going to be needed mm. in a year to five years time, right. which you know, every 
everybody around the world is finding that technology is taking over certain roles and jobs. And they found that hugely successful, especially with people who don't have a lot of confidence. But if your employer comes to you and says, here is a way that you can retrain for another job with us, staying with your colleagues, they've had fabulous results. Well, it, it sounds sounds like a very good plan, and and I really wish we could implement something like that here. I I, I do think we had we had technical colleges, which was sort of like um, a university for skills rather than a, uni- a university for yeah. professions, and they abandoned those uh, some years ago. And I think it's probably in the long run been a mistake. What what is your the majority of your time spent on at the moment? If you had to to give me a window into your normal day to day life, not the lockdown day to day life, what what sort yes. of what proportion of your time is spent doing the advisory stuff and the consulting? What percentage of it is is spent on on things like your interests that you still have in tourism and travel, um, and and in your own personal endeavors? I. In broad terms, spend about two days a week on the 5% club. And a lot of that is, I, I would say, I eat, drink and talk for a living. So I talk at conferences or I go and see patrons. I speak at members' events and, and we go all around the United Kingdom with those. And then I spend about 20% of my time or a couple of days a week sometimes with a client who for whom I do planning advice on a large grade one house in London and so that keeps my interest in the heritage very live and then I sit on the board of the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust and I Stratford so we as you can imagine even in lockdown have had a lot of board meetings on Zoom or similar right? Um, because the shock to come full circle in this conversation of normally having nearly a million visitors a year to all the homes that the Shakespeare family either lived in or were associated with to literally not one visitor now it is enormous. I mean, <sighs> financially... In practical terms, these are 16th century properties, and we have to make sure that they are not uh, vulnerable in any way. So we have to have staff that are given permission to keep checking on them. And so, yes, we've we've had a lot of lot more board meetings than usual. Yeah, and and, and mastering all this technology isn't as easy as it seems. Uh, There are people who, when when they hop on these Zoom calls and all the rest of it, all you see is their nostrils. And there are other people who who aren't necessarily wearing anything below the waist, and and then they get up to fetch a cup of tea, and it's all very embarrassing. (laughs) So I'm sure you've seen some things too, just as I have. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yes, I must remember that. <laughs> well, it is a great pleasure talking to you, and thank you so much for, for making yourself available. I'm sorry that I'm not in Cape Town to meet you, but maybe next time when we, when we have a chance to do so, we can spend a bit of time talking and catching up. I would love that. I have great affection for South Africa. My late husband's grandmother was South African, oh. was brought up in Cape Town. So I've been coming here 
all my adult life. My brother-in-law ran EMI here during difficult times, apartheid. And so uh, I hope we shall meet in the future and carry on the conversation. Good, indeed. And and keep well and keep safe and all the rest of it from, from this uh, this dreadful virus. And I hope we'll see you under better Thank circumstances next time. Thank you, Penny. Thank you Thank so much. Thank you so much. This is cliffcentral.com.